0: Sundays in July is just a wonderful time in our calendar when we have the liberty to build on a firm diet of expository preaching that we receive all year. Okay, so all year round, Lord willing, if you come to Grace, the Scriptures being opened and we're working through verse by verse, and then one month of the year we break for, for the most part, topical sessions, and so that's what this is today. And, uh, and I want to talk about beauty uh, what it is and why it matters. And um, perhaps if you did come to that seminar last year, you might remember it was, it was on my part uh, a late decision to present on that topic. So July last year, the tent was kind of freshly up and um, I had scheduled to speak on the issue of trust because I had observed that amidst all of the the pandemic and even the riots, if you remember back then, uh, it was very evident that there were low levels of trust at a societal level, and I was just trying to probe why is that, why such low levels of trust, and how do we build them? And um, and you know, I have that talk, and I developed it into into a short article because I thought it was just an important topic. But at the last minute, I changed almost for my benefit because I just felt like it would be good to offer something a little bit more encouraging. Uh, It's true that there are very low levels of trust in society right now, but I didn't have much encouraging to say in that talk. And I thought, should I encourage folks? And something that I had been thinking about really only for a few weeks prior to that Sunday was the issue of beauty. And I, I can't remember what it was that first prompted me to consider... The topic of beauty, but I had been thinking about it for just a few weeks, and then my Sunday came around, and I thought, you know, I'm just going to go for it. And uh, I've done this a number of times before. You commit to teaching on a topic before you fully understand it, and now it's like, okay, I really need to figure out what I believe about this now. And I did that with that seminar, and um, and I was preparing and preparing and reading and reading. And there's not as much written on beauty as you might hope, uh, but I, I that seminar last year, which is available online. Um, was my initial stab at thinking through the topic of beauty, trying to define it and just open it up a little bit. That was my first attempt at it. And um, what I can say is since then, I haven't stopped thinking about it. Uh, it, It's amazing. As As a topic, it is so enticing, Uh, there's just seemingly no end of consideration that we can give to the issue of beauty. And so it's not an overstatement to say that for a year now I've been thinking about this topic and trying to learn more about beauty, and there's lots and lots and lots to say about it. Today I just want to give you one thought or make one argument. Um, Before I do that, let's do a little bit of a review of last year. Last year, I began by trying to nail down a definition of beauty, and and I said that if you look at the concept of beauty in the Bible, the the verb in the New Testament, um, which is often translated to adorn, comes from the verb literally is cosmeto. And when I say that, you might hear one of two things: either your thoughts might go to cosmetics, and that's entirely right. That's where we get our verb our, our noun cosmetics from. Uh, or maybe cosmos, which is also a legitimate connection as well. Um, So in the ancient world, to adorn, to beautify something was to form a connection with the cosmos. Uh, There was an acknowledgement. God has created the heavens and the earth, and he's done so wondrously. We see his splendor, his glory. And there are certain things that we can behold in everyday life that in some way, in some way, capture something of the grandeur of God's creation. So in antiquity, if you were to declare something to be beautiful, you were saying, in this thing, I find something of God's handiwork that's writ large on a much greater scale. Um, as As I've toyed with that idea and tried to refine that definition over the course of the year... My, here's my tweetable version for you, okay? This is the currency of today for the younger generation. Put it in a tweet. Uh, I don't really know what I'm saying when I say that. <laughs> I just know that when you tweet, you are regressing in uh, your communication abilities because you're forcing yourself to not go beyond a certain number of characters. And for some reason, we think that's a good idea, a good way of communicating today. I'll limit myself in words so as to open myself up to all kinds of misinterpretations. Um, What is beauty? It is that quality wherein we detect the fingerprints of God. If I say something is beautiful, I'm saying that in this, in some way, that maybe I can't quite pin down, I detect the fingerprints of God. Uh, I see something of his handiwork in this. And there's a few truths that flow out of that. The first is that beauty is concerned with both form and content, not just content. So we tend to think uh, of uh, content alone when we behold something, the, the, the object itself, the thing that goes into it. Uh, we're not all that mindful of the form, the manner of the arrangement, but that's as important when you consider beauty. So if you look at a face, a human face, and you say that's beautiful, it's not merely because the face has two eyes, a nose, and a mouth Uh, but it is also because of the way in which those elements are arranged. Uh, If I showed you those same elements, two eyes, a nose, and a mouth, but in a different order, you perhaps wouldn't find it to be so beautiful. So beauty uh, pertains to both form and content. The other thing to say about beauty is it is a transcendental quality. It is a transcendental quality, meaning beauty always pushes your mind beyond an immediate consideration of the object that you are declaring to be beautiful. Okay, if you think about this, if beauty is truly something wherein we detect the fingerprints of God, we see in this object something of God's handiwork on a much bigger scale, what beauty does is it pushes your mind to a consideration beyond the object itself. Uh, If you look at a child's hand and you say, "'This hand is beautiful,' If you truly ponder that hand and the beauty of it, eventually your thoughts will go beyond the hand. If you look at the ocean and you say, this is beautiful, you can only look at that ocean for so long before your thoughts are pressed beyond the ocean. You go above and beyond because of the beauty inherent to it. It's a transcendental quality. Uh, that's one of the reasons that beauty is quite difficult to pin down. If you t- tell me something's beautiful, I'm not necessarily going to disagree with you. But if I ask you why, why, why do you find beauty in that? Uh, I'm going to guess you're going to be hard-pressed to explain yourself. And that's not necessarily a fault on your part. It's just a, an enigmatic quality. It's constantly pushing you beyond the object. And so it's hard to say why you find the object beautiful. Um, another thing that we could say about beauty is that for um, many, many, many years now, it has been linked to two other qualities, and that is goodness and truth. So perhaps you've heard people talk about the good, the beautiful, and the true. It was Plato that first suggested that those three qualities belong together, and then Augustine followed up from a more kind of Christian perspective and affirmed it. And most people throughout the tradition of, of at least Western philosophy have affirmed that, that triad. Uh, very occasionally someone kind of rises up and says, that's wrong, and then everyone else says, no, you're wrong, be quiet. Uh, It's true. The, The good, the beautiful, and the true belong together. And in fact, they can't be separated. And theologically, that would stand to reason. If beauty is that quality wherein we detect the fingerprints of God, we see something of him in this object, well, what do we know about God? We know that he is good and that he is true. Uh, He's not evil and he doesn't lie. And so when you detect true beauty, uh, quickly followed is some expression of goodness and truth. The three always belong together. And in fact, that triad is what I've been occupied with for most of this last year. When I tell you that I haven't stopped thinking about beauty and tried to understand it more and more, Invariably, that triad of qualities is one that is uh, open to so much pondering and consideration. And you'll be surprised how often it shows up in life, um, positively or negatively, uh, or distortions thereof. And a lot can be explained by resorting to that triad. So let me just give you some examples. Uh, Literature good stories uh, depend upon the author honoring the good, the beautiful, and the true, Uh, particularly in in children's stories, by the way. So uh, last year I finished, it was in the tent. Praise the Lord we're not in the tent today. Um, (laughs) I was in the tent and I finished and some folks came up and they had questions. And and one lady asked me, and she's maybe here today, she said, um, you know, has all this stuff that you're talking about got anything to do with with the stories that I read to my grandkids. I said, absolutely. Um, the, The good, the beautiful, and the true, that's what underpins good stories. And I can't remember whether she mentioned it or I just thought about it later. I went on to write a short article that you can find online somewhere entitled, Why Aslan Was a Lion. Why Aslan Was a Lion. That's the title of the article, And um, there's there's maybe a misunderstanding out there. You know, C.S. Lewis, when he wrote The Chronicles of Narnia, and especially The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, undoubtedly he's forging many connections with the gospel narrative. That's true, and and he would say so, and he did say so. Uh, But it's not true that he picked Aslan to be a lion in order to forge a connection with the lion of Judah, That was not his intention. He didn't mean for that to be the case. We often interpret Aslan the lion in that respect because the Bible talks about Christ being the lion of Judah. He actually gave an interview and and spoke about Aslan specifically. Why a lion? And he said, I don't really know. Um, He said, it just seemed to fit. And after I decided that Aslan was a lion, everything else fell into place. So in this article, I was being uh, quite arrogant and I supposed to speak on behalf of C.S. Lewis and I said, let me explain why I think Aslan was a lion and he could not have worked in any other way. Um, The first thing to say is that there are two types of children's stories. When you become, when you take on yourself to write a children's book, you're assuming a very, very weighty responsibility. There's one type of children's book which... uh, speaks to children in their language and in, their, in, in accordance with their perception of the world, and they're silly, and it's fine. They're silly, and they're just enjoyable. Uh, so Dr. Zeus would be one of those. It's in rhyme, it talks about silly things, and it's funny, and it's not instructional. There's another type of children's story that seeks to do something more. They are children's stories that seek to teach children about universal truths that they will need to know if they are to succeed in the world as they grow up. And those children's stories typically occur in a make-believe world, not always, but often they do, so as to entice the child, you take the child into this make-believe world, and then in that make-believe world, you start to teach them about universal truths that they need to know. You have to know this if you're going to do well in the world. And if you're, if you're an author of that kind of story, you better not mess with those universal truths. It's not fair on the child. If, um, if good is not good and bad is not bad, you've done the child a great disservice. Uh, or to put it this way, the dividing line between good and evil needs to be really, really clear if you're writing that kind of story. Uh, this, by the way is probably my biggest issue with uh, Harry Potter books. Um, I haven't read them, and, you know, I'm opening up a can of worms. Uh, There's so many things that people might take issue with. My biggest issue, as I'm told, is that the the dividing line between good and evil isn't clear. And so you have these young children being swept up in this make-believe world, and um, there's one character, Snape, who I'm told is presented in every respect, as someone who's not good. And at the very end, you're told, actually, he was good. Now, in an adult novel, that's fine, because, Lord willing, a long time ago, we grasped these universal truths, and we've seen lots of manifestations of them as well as distortions of them in order to be able to cope. Suspense is fine in an adult novel, and you can, you can turn the tables at the last minute and say, tricked you, it's fine, but not to children, because they still need to grasp these fundamental universal truths. And as I understand, the Harry Potter books don't actually do that, and they, they kind of play with them, and the line isn't clear. C.S. Lewis, by contrast, honored the good, the beauty, the true emphatically. Um, so so think about it. There's this character in the Chronicles of, the, of, of Narnia who was abundantly good. I mean, just abundantly, emphatically, he does no wrong. Uh, Everything he says is true. There is no hint of deception on Aslan's lips. So he's, he's very good and he's very true. And now the question comes, how am I going to present him? What's he going to look like? And you intuitively know it would not have worked if he had been a rat, right? If you're a rat lover, my apologies, but you picked an ugly animal, It works for him to be a lion. It works for him to be the most glorious, the most magnificent beast in all of the animal kingdom. In fact, he has to be. If he's going to be as good and as true as the novel portrays him to be, he has to sit at the top of the food chain. And so you get this wonderful, incredible beast. Of course, Aslan was a lion because the good, the beautiful, and the true cannot be separated. The three work in accordance with each other all the time. Um, I'll give you another example. Apart from literature, advertisers play on this relationship. Uh, and, and they may not know that they do from a philosophical perspective, but they know what they're doing. The advert begins with a lie. Okay, So the lie might be to the effect of, you need to buy this car, uh, or this is the best car ever, ever made. Well, that's a lie. We know that's a lie. It's not the truth. Um, and they're going to follow with, with a, a, an imperative that you need to buy it. But how are they going to get you to buy it? Well, if they presented the car in a parking lot, right? If they showed you the car in a parking lot and said, this is the best car ever, you need to buy it, we would not be persuaded. We know it's a lie and we don't feel in any way obliged to look into the purchase of this car. By contrast, if they present this car as beautiful, and they're not even able to present the car as that beautiful, the car's shiny, uh, but but what what do they surround it with? They put two very good-looking people in it, driving. They are smiling, with these white teeth, and they're driving the car through the most epic scenery that you can imagine. Right, You're, you're treated to these shots of God's creation in all of its glory. So what are the advertisers doing? They're heaping on the beauty. They overload on the beauty in order to try and get away with the lie. Because they've distorted the triad, they have to compensate. So there's lots of beauty in order that they might just get away with, this is the best car ever, so that you then follow up and and buy the car. It's also the reason why we sing. Um, We sing every Lord's Day, and we have been for the history of Christianity. Why do we sing? Uh, Why don't we show up and rehearse the truth not in song, right? We could all stand together and say without any melody, crown him with many crowns, uh, the Lord upon his throne. We could do that and we're rehearsing the truth, but what we do is we adorn the truth with beauty, Okay, we we speak the truth, but we do it with beauty, i.e. a musical melody, so as to bring into high definition the truth that we're speaking. And then the hymn will often imply some kind of good that is to come from it, i.e. some kind of action on your part, the good, the beautiful, and the true. You can keep pondering that relationship until you go to glory. It is everywhere we look, it undergirds our world, uh, either positively or sometimes negatively, and those that are really skillful in what they do, and I, I mean, I think a lot about stories, those that are particularly skillful in writing stories know about it, and they will play with it to create certain effects. Um, what does beauty do? This is all still a refresh from last year. I said beauty satisfies, it instructs, and it transforms. Beauty satisfies you. We were made to take in beauty. Uh, Our souls are hungry for beauty, and the psalmist says in Psalm 24, one thing I've asked of the Lord, uh, one request I've made of him, that I may dwell in his house forever and gaze upon his beauty. That's what my soul longs for. Uh, It also instructs, so again, think about that triad and think about the fact that beauty is that transcendental quality wherein we detect the fingerprints of God If we perceive perceive beauty, we are invariably getting instruction in the way of truth and goodness at the same time. And we learn through our perception of beauty. And then finally, it transforms. Uh, If you look at something long enough, you start to become it. Um, And Paul doesn't use the word beauty, but he says in 2 Corinthians 4, uh, I I gaze upon the Lord or, or looking at his glory, that's when I'm transformed into the likeness of Christ, and so it, it behooves us. And this was my argument last year, I, I guess, as I tried to etch out a theology of beauty. We need to be concerned with it. It's important that we we have a place in our thinking and in our lives for the pursuit of beauty. But there are certain things that hold us back. There are certain things that hinder us from pursuing beauty. And this could be, this could easily form a seminar in and of itself. Um, a few that I kind of threw out. One is prettiness. Okay, prettiness is not beauty. They're not the same thing. And I'm not saying that prettiness is wrong. I'm just saying it's not beauty, and it's important to know that. Uh, so this is going back to cosmeto, the verb. Our cosmetics. That's where we get the the name. Um, you know, perhaps the biggest uh, fallacy in our in our daily life in society today. Uh, the cosmetics don't make you beautiful. Uh, They make you pretty. And again, no issue with that. But just don't think that they're making you beauty. That's not beauty. And so somebody can look very pretty, but not be good or true. That's the danger, you see. You lead somebody into thinking that this object is beautiful, when in fact it's not, it's merely pretty, and quickly followed is not truth and not goodness, but in fact, deceit and um, that which is wrong, so we are a society that 's consumed with that which is pretty we 've developed a really good appetite for it, and it 's a little bit like junk food. you think it 's food, but it 's not, and you keep eating it, and eventually it makes you sick and and The more you eat it, in fact, the less appetite you have for beauty, which is really, really tragic. Uh, so that hinders us. Uh, another thing that hinders us is, is secularism. Uh, we live in a secular society, and it 's only becoming more secular. Secularism is is basically that that impetus in society that separates uh, that which we see from the supernatural. So rewind in history 500 years and there was a place in everyone's thinking for the supernatural, in everyone's thinking. There were no atheists. People acknowledged that that God was a thing. Uh, God exists. They might reject him. They might consciously turn their back on him. But you wouldn't have made the argument there is no God. And what secularism does is it seeks to sever the natural, what you see, the physical, tangible from any thought of the supernatural. And, um, and secularism has, has advanced, uh, particularly in the last couple of decades, such that now to even say the word supernatural sounds a little bit odd, and here we are at church. Um, but think about that in, in, in relation to our definition of beauty. If you separate that which we see and feel and touch and Smell and taste from any notion of the supernatural. You are cutting off our ability to perceive beauty, right? You you see it, you appreciate it, but what secularism does is it prevents you, prohibits you, I might even say, from allowing your thoughts to transcend. Because there's no place in our society anymore for a consideration of the supernatural. So the hardened, the most hardened atheist might declare something to be beautiful, but. For certain, his thoughts are not transcending. They're not going above the contemplation of the object itself. You've robbed beauty of that transcendental element. Uh, The third thing that I mentioned last year is is utilitarianism. Um, The other thing that's true of our society is that we live in a utilitarian age. We're all about utility, product, the thing that drops off the conveyor belt. And uh, we've reached a point where we really only assign worth to something... ...if we can see that there's a tangible output at the end. Uh, if you ask me, you know, why, why are you doing this? And I say, no reason, uh, meaning I can't give you a product at the end... ...then most likely society is going to say, therefore it's a waste of time. Uh, well, that, that poses big problems uh, in many, many areas. It, it poses big problems as it relates to our perception of beauty... Uh, ...because the consideration of beauty doesn't give you a product... I don't get to walk away with something at the end of my day at the beach, having watched the ocean and watched the sunset. um, I'm better for it. I'm persuaded of that, but I've got nothing to show for my money. And so society has not much place for it, and that hinders our perception of it. All of that led me to say that we need to be concerned with the pursuit of beauty. And one place that we would uh, do well to start is the Bible. Uh, In the Bible, we have the most beautiful story, the most beautiful savior who died the most beautiful death in order to render the most beautiful salvation and and on and on and on and on it goes. And I guarantee you, if you have tuned your thoughts correctly to what beauty is, you will see it everywhere in scripture. And you can learn an awful, awful lot about beauty by simply reading your Bible more. Uh, So it was a read your Bible more talk. Um, Okay, that's all review. Okay, two o'clock. So this year, I just want to make one claim, one argument. And that is that beauty builds courage. Beauty builds courage. Or uh, to flip that on its head, if you don't pursue beauty, you're going to lack convictions. If you don't pursue beauty, you will lack convictions. How can I justify that? How do I defend that claim? Let's revisit the good, the beautiful, and the true. Uh, if I can put some slightly more technical terms on those three categories, each one of them is concerned with its own branch of philosophy. When we talk about that which is true, we are talking about the realm of metaphysics. We talk about metaphysics. Uh, the study of metaphysics is, is simply that. What, what is it that is objectively true? Uh, if I say that this is a pulpit... I'm making a statement in the realm of metaphysics. I'm stating what is true. And uh, thankfully, both in the church and in society, there isn't actually all that much disagreement about metaphysics today. I would certainly say in the church. So I can make metaphysical statements all day long, and I don't know that I would receive one disagreement from you guys. This is what is true. This is what is not true. Uh, When you go outside of the church, for the most part, we don't run into any issues. However, somewhat surprisingly, I guess, um, there is a metaphysical revolution going on right now, a revolution in metaphysics happening right now. And I'm referring to the transgender revolution. Uh, We're we're now at the point where people are challenging metaphysical uh, truths. Uh, This is a boy. No, it's not. It's a girl. Uh, And and, and one of the reasons why this revolution is proving to be so divisive and so inflammatory is because people know that they're being asked to endorse a lie. Uh, The realm of metaphysics is is fairly simple. Um, It's not all that complicated. And people are being press ganged into endorsing a lie. And they know it's not true, but they fear the consequences. And that's happening outside of the church and who knows? I mean, if, if I'd stood here 20, 30 years ago and said, guess what's coming? None of us would have believed it. So who knows what we're looking at in the next 20 or 30 years? But that's where we're at in the realm of metaphysics. It concerns that which is true. Uh, what about the next category, the good? Well, the, the branch of philosophy that we're talking about there is ethics. Ethics. And, um, and again, within the church, there is not much disagreement. And we're helped, obviously, by the fact that we have a book to guide us. We have a, a blueprint that teaches us what's right and wrong. Um, outside of the church, we haven't got such stable ground. So you go outside the church, you start making ethical claims, and you can appreciate that there isn't as widespread agreement as there might be in the metaphysics department. Um, this, is, this, is, this is a person, this person. Dot you see on the scan is a person who has life. There's some disagreement there. Um, It is wrong to abort this baby. There's some disagreement there. You see that outside of the church, ethics is now being debated. I will say this, just as a a side note um, there's not as much, no, that's the wrong way to put it. Uh, Ethics is more complicated than you think. And even within the church, we could quickly run into some tricky issues. Uh, this is by no means a criticism of the church. It's just an acknowledgement of how, how difficult ethics is as a field. Uh, so should you lie? That's my question. And you say, no. Uh, you know, the Bible is very clear on that. Um, should we allow uh, terrorist organizations like ISIS and Al-Qaeda to exist and keep doing the things they're doing? No. Okay. All right. So... Uh, do you understand that in in our efforts to stop their work, an awful lot of espionage is involved? An awful lot. I mean, countless lies being told in order to stop this work over here, which you just told me was wrong. Uh, so how, how do you think through that? Uh, do you surrender one of the claims you just made? Um, um, is, 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 is this uh, tyrant right in what he's doing? Should he be allowed to to rule over this nation in the manner that he is? No. Uh, should we stop him? Yes. Okay, but you just understand that in waging war, it is virtually impossible that innocent lives won't be lost. Uh, so you're, you're okay with that. You see, I'm just, I'm just teasing out a few hypotheticals to show you how difficult ethics really is. And, um, and if, there's, if there's some thorny issues there, then that kind of explains why when you step outside of the church and, and nobody's claiming to have a guidebook, now the whole thing gets very, very complicated. Okay, so now step to that third one, the good, the beautiful, or, or what do we do? The true, the good, and now the beautiful, well, that area of philosophy is called aesthetics. A-E-S-T-H-E-T-I-C-S, aesthetics. Oh boy, if there was... Um, if there was large buy-in in in the metaphysical realm and and not so much in the ethical realm, even less in the aesthetic realm. Uh, I would venture to say that even within the church, there is not agreement uh, in terms of that which is beautiful and that which is not, Uh, that which has value, aesthetic value, and that which doesn't. So if I I played you today three minutes of, of a Beethoven symphony And then I played you a three-minute Beyoncé song. And I said, okay, uh, which is more beautiful? Certain things would happen. Some of you would put your hand up for the Beethoven symphony. And then I'd say, okay, but why? And you're not sure why? And you might, in your answer, you might actually take a step back and say, well, I just find it to be beautiful. Right? So you just moved it from an objective to a subjective statement. It's not that I... Believe that the symphony is more beautiful. I just find it to be more beautiful. It's it's actually my opinion. Some of you would say I really don't know, but I don't think you should be up there telling us that one is better than the other. And some of you would just be outright offended, like you just love Beyonce, right? And you you don't have much time for Beethoven. You're like you can't say that. or maybe if I said to you, okay, you can spend a day walking around the Louvre in Paris, see the Mona Lisa and lots and lots of other works, and you won't exhaust it in a day. Or you can have a free day at Disneyland, right? Southern California. I just touched a raw nerve amongst the SoCal residents, right? Which, in, in, in which venue will you see more beauty? And again, some would say, well, definitely the Louvre why um i I just i just like paintings right you you try and defend your decision by making it a subjective thing it's right for me i'm not saying that that person over there has made the wrong choice or you say i just don't know you know tell me the answer (laughs) or or you say i'm taking disneyland every time and don't speak to me about the mona lisa right um you see how there's, I'm illustrating the fact that there is very, very little sense of um, objective value when it comes to aesthetics. There's very little sense of objectivity. We've lost all sense of being able to say, this is more beautiful than this. Uh, when you lose any sense of objective value in the realm of aesthetics, two things happen. The first is the world around you becomes very flat. Okay, so God has made a glorious world. He's made a very beautiful world. And, and uh, some things are incredibly beautiful. And some are not so much. But we have lost any sense of objective value. We, we have lost any sense of being able to say, this is more beautiful than this. And so the, the mountain peaks, essentially, in our perception of the world have been brought down onto a level playing field with that which was not beautiful. Uh, We see and we hear the same things or the same uh, level of of beauty in the Beethoven Symphony as we do in the pop song. Uh, We we might submit ourselves to a, a Shakespearean play and take away from it as much beauty as we would if we just stayed at home and watched a sitcom because we haven't got any sense of objective value. The world has become very flat. And actually, tragically, I think more recently, the the two have been inverted. Okay, so so take Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. It's a long piece of music and it's it's very energetic and there's a lot going on in there. Uh, It takes some real effort to sit under that for an hour and nine minutes and to really follow it and to get from it the beauty that is there. It takes a lot of effort. It doesn't take much effort for me to sit and listen to Taylor Swift for three minutes. And again, another trend that we see in our society is is we, we take the path of least resistance at every opportunity. And so today, all too often, people opt for the easier path, And they actually start to perceive that to be of more value than than the more difficult route. So the world flattens out when you lose an objective value system in that realm of aesthetics. The other thing that happens is you start to lack courage. You lose any sense of conviction. You're not willing to fight for the fights that need to be fought. Why is that so? Um, The good, the beautiful, and the true always come together. They're a package deal. If I present you with a truth, an objective truth, an attendant to it is an ethical imperative. Here's the truth, and here's what you need to do as a response. The reason that you're going to buy into that and act upon it is if you understand the objective value of it, the beauty component if I present you with an objective truth and the ethical imperative that follows, and you don't have the objective value component, there's no reason why I should expect you to stand and fight for it. Because you don't see it to be valuable. You don't think it's worthy of your effort. Um, C.S. Lewis made this uh, point in a small book that he wrote called The Abolition of Man. You can probably read it in one sitting. It's three chapters long. In the first chapter, he makes this very point. Um, he begins with a very well-known illustration, true story, of a young boy standing and beholding a waterfall. And the boy looks at the waterfall and says, that is awesome. And uh, a gentleman beside him corrects him and says, no, no, young man, it makes you feel awesome. And uh, C.S. Lewis rinses this man that just made that comment uh, saying he just just destroyed that young boy's sense of objective value. The boy was entirely correct. This is awesome. And the man says, no, it makes you feel awesome. He says he just robbed him of any sense of objective value. So that now the boy will go through life feeling if any sense of objective value comes his way, it must be due to what he's feeling and not because of some inherent worth in the object. And then he fast forward to the battlefield and says, consider how this will play out. And and the sobering point, at least it was sobering for me, is to recognize C.S. Lewis is writing this book in the early 1940s. Right, so thousands upon thousands of young men at the time of him writing this are being sent to the battlefields of Europe to fight and lose their lives. And he says the soldiers at his post. And he's confronted with a, with a metaphysical truth. and Namely, the man approaching you is the enemy. There's the truth. The man approaching you is the enemy. You might want to expand it. You are commissioned to fight against him. That's the metaphysical truth that he knows is true. The ethical imperative that quickly follows is you are to engage. You have to fight this man. If he has no objective value system in place, then he might well ask the question, but why? Why should I lose my life fighting this man on a battlefield where no one will ever see what happened? It could well be that in that moment when his country needs him the most, he runs. And it's not because he didn't know the truth of the matter or the ethical imperative that attends it, but that he didn't have an objective value system. He didn't understand the beauty, the greater beauty of what was being represented there. Um, I'll give you another example taken from the same time in history, namely of Winston Churchill. Um, How many, I'll pause here because I'm speaking too much, How many biographies do you think have been written on Winston Churchill? Just take a guess. You have to round it to a 10. You can't just, yeah. A thousand. thousand. Okay, so it will work much better if you guess guess low. Like, come in low, (laughs) and then I'll impress you, okay? So, So try again. Yeah, 50. You'd think, right? It's a lot of biographies for one man. Right. Any other guess? Keep it low. Yeah, right, 60. Over a 1,000 biographies have been written. <laughs> About 1,010. <laughs> Which is incredible. That tells you something, right? And you need to read one of them at some point in your life. And when you do, I challenge you to not feel a deep, deep sense of gratitude towards that man. Um, incredible bravery incredible fortitude, incredible tenacity at a time when everyone around him was telling to capitulate. Um, And you may know, we came within a hair's breadth of being invaded by Germany, and if that had been the case and one thing led to another, it'd be a very different world today. And, um, And so the question is, where did Churchill get his courage from? And the answer that many people have offered is from his school days. So Churchill went to a school back home called Harrow, Harrow School for Boys. Very, very good school. You pay an awful lot of money to go there today. Uh, He had a very privileged education. And he was not a very good student. People commonly acknowledge that. There was one highlight in his education, one thing that stands out, and that is the year that he won the Headmaster's Prize for memorizing over 1,200 lines of poetry. He memorized over 1,200 lines of poetry, namely of one particular poem called The Lays of Ancient Rome. The Lays of Ancient Rome, which is an extended poem recounting acts of bravery and courage from the time of the Roman Empire. And so it's not too much of a stretch to see that Churchill shaped his worldview his mind his heart his soul through poetry specifically about acts of courage and bravery fast forward to his prime ministership and the truth that is presented to him is hitler wants to take over europe the ethical imperative is you stand and fight and the objective value is that freedom is worth fighting for He had an objective value system that informed the good and the true. And because of that, he said, we will never, ever, ever surrender. So what beauty does is it builds an objective value system that in turn starts to develop convictions within you. And when the fight comes, you're willing and ready to fight based upon your understanding of the objective worth of the thing that is up for for contest, so where does that leave us What do we, what do we make of all of this well i don't imagine, i don 't imagine that any of us will be in the same kind of position as Winston Churchill, but you must recognize that it 's not um, as easy to be a Christian today as it was uh, some years ago, and surely it is going to get harder. Uh, our country this country is becoming less and less Christian, more and more secular. And um, our truths that we hold dear are being challenged more and more readily. So we need to develop some convictions in order that we may hold on to them and fight and not run when we're called upon. How do you develop that objective value system? This is maybe the hardest question in all of this seminar. How do you develop an objective value system? Uh, There are probably two ways to come at it. You can come at the topic of beauty from two different directions. One is to do what Churchill did, and that is to um, avail yourself of your cultural heritage, if I can put it like that. Uh, We are all here as part of the Western tradition, and the Western tradition is one that has, for the most part, affirmed and championed and celebrated things of beauty. And so to submit yourself to the cultural heritage, which is part of you, will start to develop within you an understanding of beauty. Uh, You understand, Churchill didn't have someone beside him explaining every line of poetry. He just memorized the poetry and it became part of his moral fiber. And so it really isn't a bad idea to start exploring what the Western tradition has championed for decades upon decades upon decades. Uh, There are books that will not go away. They have stood the test of time, and they've done so for a reason. Generation after generation has said, this is a good book. There's something in this. Uh, Don't be so naive to think that you wouldn't gain something from reading that book. And there are many of them. There's a small library that you could occupy yourself with until the day you go to glory. Um, I'll be honest, I don't have much time for new books. <laughs> I just keep reading the old books because my cultural heritage says there is something about this that you need to get hold of. And you may even want to then do the very thing I said Churchill wasn't doing, but it, it is worth doing, is, is to read a book or, or, or a paper about the book, right? Right? You read Homer's Iliad, and then you read a commentary on Homer's Iliad or, or something that says, this is why that was so special. And all it does is it educates you. It gives you more understanding as to why and what in this book is so important. And listen, when you do that over and over and over again, and, and there's something about the way you're living your life that you keep going back to your cultural heritage, you start to develop an intuition for beauty. You start to recognise what beauty is, and you'll be surprised at how much of a distaste you would develop for that which is ugly, or how much of a distaste you would develop for that which is merely pretty. There's a lot of prettiness out there today in terms of literature. There's a lot of prettiness out there in terms of music. It's fine. It's not inherently wrong, but it's not beautiful. And the more you submerse yourself in that which is beautiful, the more you'll develop a distaste for it. Uh, In a very short amount of time, you can be quite well-educated in the realm of beauty and you will enjoy beautiful things more. And with those beautiful things will come some convictions. The good, the beautiful, and the true always go together. And as you submerse yourself in beautiful things, you'll start to develop some convictions, what is important in life and what is not because so much of the wisdom, I haven't mentioned this yet, so much of the wisdom is even knowing which fights are worthy of fighting uh, and which, which fights are not worthy of your efforts. But you have to develop that rubric in the first place. The other angle at which you can come at beauty is, again, the Scripture, but I want to be a little bit more specific. There are certain theological doctrines that ooze beauty, that are saturated in the, uh, the aesthetics Uh, There are certain theological doctrines that more than others inform our perception of beauty in the world. So I'll just give you one example, and it's an easy one, and it's where I always like to start. The Trinity is a wonderful uh, field of study if you want to grow in your perception of beauty. So just think about what I said at the beginning of today. Beauty, my, my little definition, is that transcendental quality wherein we detect the fingerprints of God. Well, let's study God a bit more so as to better detect those fingerprints, right? So what could we study about God? Well, we could study the Trinity. That's what sets us apart from all these other religions as it relates to our our theology proper, our theology of God. Uh, What does the Trinity tell us? Uh, Three people, one God. Three people, one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So in that, we find unity, that's a Trinitarian doctrine, coupled with, balanced with diversity, three individual people, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, coupled with complementarity. Each person of the Trinity perfectly complements the other two, uh, coupled with restraint. How about that? The three are infinitely powerful, and yet they all exercise a measure of restraint, coupled with purpose each member of the trinity has a unique purpose within redemptive history and on and on and on it goes so you've studied the trinity for a bit and you know a few basic things about the trinity and now you think about beauty in the world that we perceive it Uh, i keep going to music today it's the easiest place to begin the cogs turning about beauty so so you know you have this amateur rock band right these 20 something year old guys and they think they're it Right. And, uh, and they play their song, and, and they look to you for approval, and, and, and what do you make of it? Well, uh, there was certainly no unity there. They didn't all play in time. The guitar didn't fit with the bass, and it was pretty awful. No unity. Uh, was there diversity? Well, not in a Trinitarian sense. <laughs> a different instruments, but they were not working together in any real sense, so there certainly wasn't any complementarity And there was no restraint because they all think they're the best thing and they're all fighting to be heard the loudest. So they want the thumbs up. You are okay to give the thumbs down, all right? This is not my personal opinion. That was ugly. (laughs) This is not a personal preference issue. That was not a nice sound. You can say that. It's possible to say that in the age in which we live. It was ugly. How can you say that? Because you're... Understanding of beauty is, at least in part, informed by the Trinity. And there was no fingerprints of God in what you just did there. Uh, Beethoven's Symphony. Um, Is there unity? Absolutely. I mean, this composite sound that has lasted decades upon decades, and people are singing today one tune coming out of this orchestra Is there diversity for sure? 15 plus instruments, each doing, each carrying their own melodic line. And yet they're all working together masterfully. Complementarity to produce the end result. Restraint, absolutely. Purpose, on and on it goes. So you can see very clearly the fingerprints of God there. That was beautiful. That man was a genius and the product is something that inheres beauty. Uh, now fast forward to the office, and your boss has asked you to sit on the company's uh, committee for diversity. Okay, And this is the trump card of the day. You say the D word and you win all arguments. right? So now you have the privilege of forming, tweaking, influencing the diversity policy of the company. And everyone else in the room is terrified and says diversity at all costs and diversity in the extremist expression of it. And you might have the conviction to say, do we really want that? You might say, "Um, how about examining whether the the level of diversity for which you're championing will bring about a unity of purpose? Because my fear is, if we go this far down the diversity road, we actually start to lose a common focus as a company, right? And everyone's jaw is on the floor that you dare to challenge that. And then you say, in fact, I've got a few more things to say. Um, (laughs) What about complementarity? I mean, I'm all for diversity, but the level of diversity that you're arguing for seems to me that it might bring about some issues as this team of the company tries to work with this team and for whatever reason, they're no longer compatible and we're now hindering our progress. Um, and, And on it goes, that's a hypothetical example. Or maybe it's not that you get to sit in and inform those decisions. Maybe the contract is just brought to your desk, sign this, right? And here's our diversity policy. And you might say, well, to begin with, do you realize that the, the diversification that you're in favor of is constructed around artificial communities? I mean, these groups that you're singling out, they're not even real. You talk about this community, they don't live together. They don't go to the one shop all together. They don't pool their resources. They live with everyone else. They do life the same way as we all do it. So it's actually an artificially constructed community. It's not real. And by championing this diversity policy predicated upon that, I think is going to be disastrous for our company. Here's what might work instead. Just a hypothetical uh, example of how the pursuit of beauty might result in some convictions that would help you live out the Christian cause and champion the name of Jesus Christ better in the age in which we live. Okay, 2.30, a word of prayer to close, and then I'll hang around uh, for your difficult questions. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Uh, Thank you for our church. We thank you that you have made a beautiful world that we get to live in, and there is so much of your glory that we can perceive. And we do pray that you'd instruct our hearts and our minds to take it in well, guide us in our thinking especially in so much as it helps us to cling on to that which is true and to do that which is good. May we be those who are found with biblical convictions uh, to the praise and glory of Christ. Amen.